You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Jim Del Rosso from Las Vegas, Nevada, where I'm involved in clinical research, a lot of teaching, a lot of different things. But that's not what I'm, what's important right now. What's important right now, I think, is to summarize this great year we had in 2022 with Derms and Conditions podcasts. And it was a great year for dermatology in general. A lot of new, great published information in many areas, disease state-wise, treatment-wise, new devices, new technologies in addition to uh, medications. And we had the opportunity, I know I did, and I've thoroughly enjoyed it, to talk to a lot of great people in dermatology about a variety of different subjects. So this is the greatest hits of Derms and Conditions podcast for 2022. I'm not going to be able to cover everything, but I'm going to pull out some high points. I strongly recommend you go back every once in a while and listen to some older episodes. It's sometimes like watching a movie again that you haven't seen in a while, and you see it a second time or even a third time, and you pick up on things that you didn't necessarily capture um, the prior times that you watch the movie. The same thing happens with these podcasts, and, and I've continued to learn a lot. So if you have the time, you can certainly do it. You search Derms and Conditions podcasts at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows, and you'll see the entire catalog, the menu of all the past episodes. They're still there from the very beginning, and you can listen to them at any time. Start, pick up, and continue to go back as well as move forward with learning. So I want to start with episode 21, and that was a discussion with Dr. Mark Lebol. And Mark is synonymous with psoriasis, as we all know. He's done a lot of research and teaching in the area of psoriasis. But he's worked on a lot of different areas, been very involved in organizing and running research at Mount Sinai. And one of the areas that he's been involved with for quite some time with several different uh, therapies like amicomod, inginol, mebutate, turbinibulin, the most recent uh, topical. These are all topical field therapies. And even topical 5-fluorouracil and topical diclofenac. We had a discussion and Mark went through mechanisms of action and how these a- agents differ and how that correlates with what you might expect as far as the outcome, and also the associated visible inflammation or lack thereof. So you can predict what kind of downtime um, patients are going to have where they have visible inflammation, which may be unsightly and sometimes symptomatic in some cases, like with topical 5-fluorouracil. With amicomod, they can get, in many cases, a lot of brisk visible inflammation, though usually not as symptomatic. Topical 5-fluorouracil, obviously, that's expected based on the mechanism of the drug. Diclofenac, longer durations needed, but less visible inflammation. Maybe not quite as effective, though I think if they use it long enough, consistently enough, it does very well. And then topical turbinibulin, which is the newest topical field therapy, applied for five days. And then the data when you go out at about two months is very impressive in terms of actinic keratosis, uh, complete clearance and partial clearance with some good substantivity of effect. I think the advantage that Dr. Lebwall points out and that I'm familiar with myself having researched uh, this agent 
in clinical studies, is there's less visible inflammation because it really stimulates more of an apoptotic pathway uh, than it actually does causing a lot of necrosis with secondary inflammation. Obviously, you get reduction in actinic keratosis lesions. This was a very um, insightful podcast and one that really stresses the importance of field therapy. We use cryotherapy or other directed uh, modalities, physical modalities, to pull the weeds, if you will, looking at the visible actinic keratoses. Uh, the field therapies that we apply on the tire, entire field ought to stop new weeds from coming that we know are emerging subclinically, weeds being, in this case, referring to actinic keratosis. So field therapy, although it's not uh, data shows it's not as utilized as much as it needs to be, is really very important to, to implement in patients with actinic keratosis to really get a more complete treatment. The next podcast, I thought, uh, went in a different direction. The next one I'm going to discuss anyway was episode number 23 with Dr. Patty Ferris. And I've known Patty for a long time, clinical dermatologist down in the New Orleans, New Orleans area, where she's done a lot of medical and a lot of cosmetic and aesthetic dermatology. Very well versed in cosmeceuticals uh, and in treating treating a lot of common conditions that we see in dermatology. And one of the points that she makes, the discussion focusing on how you integrate with a general medical and general surgical dermatology practice, aesthetic. Um, practices, selling products in in some cases, and also doing aesthetic procedures and how you build that into your overall practice. And really, it's important. Essentially, you're putting yourself in the position of the individuals having confidence. Because if you're treating their medical condition, you're, you're treating their, their kids or whatever, and they like the outcome, they like how you you uh, talk to them, how you connect with them, and then get an outcome, a positive outcome, then they'll start thinking about that pamphlet that they see about, you know, aesthetic procedures or cosmetic procedures or, or some of the areas that go into that part of practice, and they'll talk to you about it. So you really feed your aesthetic and cosmetic practice from your performance on medical dermatology. A lot of dermatologists need to do that because they're not only practicing cosmetic dermatology, subset do, but most do not. Also, the importance, as she stated, of owning skincare. And she suggested while you're doing a complete skin check, talk to patients about what they're doing. How are they photoprotecting themselves? What's their general skincare recommend? Uh, regimen and give them some basic education on how to improve that as part of their overall care and dermatology. I agree with Dr. Ferris. If we don't own skincare, then it's going to be taken away from us. And often our patients are going to get recommendations that we don't think are optimal. A very, very a good podcast. She also talks about how she sold her practice to a group um, that's more corporate, more in the venture capital capital side and the things you need to consider because you own the practice and you're the boss, but when you sell it, you're no longer the boss and you have to understand that and you have to go into it trying to have a positive relationship on how to merge into a new group that is actually run by 
someone else, not yourself. And she talks about the pros and cons of that. That can be the same with joining an individual's private practice. It doesn't only have to be um, those considerations with a big group or a corporate group. And then going down to the next one that I wanted to discuss, this is Dr. Julie Harper. And Julie Harper is a past president of the American Acne and Rosacea Society. She's a great lady in the trenches in dermatology practice in the Birmingham, Alabama area, and very active in education, also clinical research, advising and teaching, focusing on acne and rosacea. And Julie's a thinker. She thinks things through, and she comes up with what she believes to be the best way to manage these conditions in patients with very practical recommendations. So we talked a lot about rosacea and how we evaluate rosacea in terms of the manifestations of the disease and how it correlates with what's going on, you know, behind it all, and that the facial erythema of rosacea, which can have a variety of different causes. Just the poor barrier function with some uh, low-level inflammation that can happen when there's transepidermal water loss and there can be some scaling and dryness. The scaling can be confused a lot of times with seborrheic dermatitis, which it's not um, in many of those cases. Uh, Also, the fact that if they have transient lesions like papules and pustules, when those are present, they have lesional and perilesional erythema, which can flare beyond those lesions, and that creates redness. But also behind it all, especially over time, they develop this progressive increased superficial vascular dilatation. The vessels get larger and greater in number. Some may produce actually fixed telangiectasias, and then the patient has that persistent facial erythema, what she likes to call PFE. So we have a moniker to realize that PFE is pivotal to essentially all patients with cutaneous rosacea. And the cardinal feature is facial erythema and that vasculature, which dilates. And then during flushing, dilates even further during a flare, is different in terms of what's happening. That's why our therapies, our medical therapies, target different components of the disease and not everything that we see with regard to the disease. So the agents that we have, like topical metronidazole, topical azelaic acid, topical ivermectin, topical minocycline, um, those agents treat papulopustular lesions. Doxycycline, especially the FDA-approved subantibiotic dose doxycycline will reduce the papulopustular lesions and the erythema surrounding those, what we call perilesional erythema. That background vasculature that's persistent and f- fixed in its dilation and can increase with intensity during a, a flushing episode, right? that's different. And at least from a medical standpoint, we target that with alpha agonists, which cause vasoconstriction. They're applied over a period of hours. They'll vasoconstrict. That redness will go down. It'll eventually come back, and it needs to be applied again on a daily basis. Now, as Dr. Harper pointed out, many patients use this intermittently, but the real value and the long-term data, the one-year data shows this with both alpha agonists that if patients utilize this therapy every day, their baseline redness before they treat in the morning, when they're looking in the mirror, over time, across the board, the 
across the group, the average amount of baseline er uh, diffuse facial erythema is lower. So repeated use of alpha agonist therapy tends to reset the baseline erythema and it reduces over time. So it really is a therapy that they should utilize every day. So I asked Dr. Harper, what are some considerations you have where you think maybe I have not done all this quite as well as I would have liked to, even though I'm doing my best and I'm thinking about it a lot, talking about it at meetings, writing lectures, etc. And she came up with what I thought was a great mnemonic called STOP. The S is for symptoms and signs. Don't forget to recognize that there are symptoms and we need to treat those, not only the visible signs of cutaneous rosacea. And then triggers. It's easy to think, oh, it's impossible to control triggers. Uh, you know, people would have to sit inside their house and do nothing, but that's not necessarily the case. If patients can point out specific triggers that tend to flare their disease, you could work with them on that and try to help them modify that. And then outcomes. Outcomes being what is the patient hoping to achieve? And it may be hard for them because all they see is redness and maybe pimples on their face and the dilated vessels, maybe phimas or, you know, swollen eyelids, whatever the case may be. But that allows you to get into that discussion and talk to them how different therapies will target different components of the disease. And that leads to P, which is the plan. Talk to them about how you're going to initiate and integrate the different therapies and that it's going to take time. And it allows for a discussion that lets the patient leave feeling comfortable that this clinician understands the disease, they understand the difficulty, also have directed me on how to scare, you know, and <laughs> I guess scare away the disease, how to care for the disease with the skin care, and also not only the do's, but the don'ts to try to help improve the rosacea, and that it's a marathon not a sprint. And then where devices fit in for some of the fixed changes like phimas and telangiectasias. An excellent podcast, and I always get a lot out of talking to Julie. Then we go to 26, and this is Dr. Sandra Lee, who is known to the world as Dr. Pimple Popper. Now that may seem like, oh, she really wanted to become a social media guru and become famous and have a TV show. That was not her initial plan. She had been practicing dermatology and dermatologic surgery along with her husband in Southern California and was just trying to create some online presence to market her practice because there's quite a bit of competition. It evolved from some videos she posted into this mega social media um, craze that 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 she progressed into um, and had a very big social media presence and eventually a television show. But she is well rooted in dermatology. Her father was a dermatologist at Downstate with back with Dr. Shalita back in the day. And if you actually watch her show. It is very professionally done in terms of being true to dermatology and treating patients accurately and really talking to them to make sure they understand the disease. She holds true to that. I'm sure producers and others try to get her to do things that she's going to say, nope, that's not what a dermatologist will do. And we discussed that. But 
one extension from this, and she is very passionate about the fact that tumescent anesthesia, which is a technique that many of us learned from Dr. Jeff Klein, teaching about how to do liposuction in the office, right? Tumescent uh, anesthesia, which she does frequently for the removal of larger lesions, large lipomas, large cystic lesions, maybe occasionally some skin cancers, but usually very large benign lesions that dermatologists will tend to refer to surgery. So they lose that patient within their dermatology practice as far as the procedure, and they go to a surgeon, treated in the hospital, treated more expensively, sometimes in a more invasive fashion, and she talks about how tumescent anesthesia can allow you, if you have surgical orientation, to remove very large lesions safely with minimal blood loss, a lot more cost-effective to the patient, and to get great outcomes with minimal pain. And she feels very strongly that residents should be taught this and more dermatologists should own this. And, and quite frankly, she's right. Having taken that course from Dr. Klein, tumescent anesthesia is something that is worth learning. And she goes through that in that episode, in the second half of that episode. Now we'll move on to Dr. Ted Lane. Now, Dr. Ted Lane is a dermatologist active in clinical practice, in clinical research in Austin, Texas. He is very involved in running the business within this group. It's one of the groups that acquires other dermatology practices. And he is very passionate about dermatologists being able to practice quality dermatology and putting the patient first. He talks about how clinicians can get more involved and knowledgeable about the business aspects of dermatology, which he did from the very beginning. But he talks about a book that is out there that he mentions that he was a part of as far as the textbook chapter, and also courses that the American Academy of Dermatology gives on practice management. And that's something that's becoming more important to us as changes occur in the healthcare environment. He also discusses if you are looking at joining, uh, changing your practice, maybe you're already in practice and you're looking at maybe joining a group or joining one of the bigger corporations or even going in with another dermatology practice. The bottom line is to look at the leadership of that group and see what is at their core, what is their belief system, what you feel is their integrity level and their passion for taking care of patients, not necessarily always putting the dollars first, which will eventually catch up with whoever is doing that. And some people do do that, though I'd like to believe that most of us, we, put, we believe patient first. And dollars, they come, but do the right thing, so to speak. He also gives a very good discussion because a lot of dermatologists coming out of residency come in and they say, well, this is what I'm looking for. I'm looking at X number of days a week, X number of weeks of vacation where I'm off, um, only X number of patients a day, this type of practice. And he br basically breaks it down to what they should expect. They can reasonably collect for themselves as their income. He gives evidence of the of averages of what the 
a dermatologist in a medical dermatology practice is going to get per office visit. Multiply that by the number of patients per day, assuming there's 100% collection, and then multiply that over the course of how many visits over the course of the year. And that will show you what you can expect to collect, and then you're only going to receive a percentage of that. So it allows the discussion to be realistic rather than someone just dreaming that they're going to get X amount just because they're showing up. And it takes a while to learn that if you don't really understand the business. Very worthwhile podcast. And then early on, episode 27. Dr. Lane was episode 28. Dr. Lee was episode 26. In episode 27, Dr. Gary Goldenberg talked a a general discussion on precision dermatology, utilizing methodologies that could be done on tissue blocks to classify whether certain tumors, melanomas, or pigmented lesions, or uh, squamous cell carcinomas, or more high risk or low risk based on the genetic information that's obtained. Very interesting discussion, and this is evolving as being very practical in dermatology and as a moving target as we continue to learn more and more. Also, some simple, um, basically, skin stripping tests that can uh, superficially allow for transcriptome evaluation to look at whether there are high risk or low risk pigmented lesions and may assist you in deciding what to biopsy or how to follow lesions, right? But also a newer modality, which Dr. Goldenberg touches on, but Dr. Jennifer Cather in episode 39, who has vast experience in treatment of psoriasis with many systemic agents, biologics and oral therapies, and even phototherapy, discusses a technology called MindPX. And this MindPX, the patient uh, can have it done at the office, or the company will arrange with the patient's consent to actually have this done at the patient's home. There's a a skin stripping technique that's un uh, it's painless and superficial that is sent in. Transcriptomes are evaluated that allow for prediction of higher likelihood of response to anti-TNF agents, anti-IL-17 agents, or anti-IL-23. One, two, or all three of those being effective, or maybe one more likely to be effective than another. So it allows you to fine-tune your selection of the biologic agents. And Dr. Cather, who knows a lot about how to treat patients and select these different agents, has been working with this and feels it expands on her already very good capability. And she points out ways that this can help you improve the management of patients in your practice utilizing biologics. And then last but not least, I'd strongly recommend you listen to episode number 40 with Dr. Whitney High, who is a board-certified dermatologist and dermatopathologist, and he's become a leader and such a great guy and so knowledgeable. He talks about blastic plasmacytoid dendritic cell neoplasm, BPDCN, which is relatively uncommon, but is very important to identify, has a variety of different presentations, typically as some form of localized or maybe scattered or diffuse vascular lesions, and 
a proper biopsy, typically a punch biopsy giving enough depth with the pathologist, dermatopathologist being attuned to looking for this entity to do the proper testing to diagnose it. The significance is it has a very poor prognosis and a rapid downhill course. And dermatologists see many of these cases and are involved in the position of making the initial diagnosis because so many cases present in the skin. So being attuned to it's important. It may not be something that you see walking in every day or every month, but if you pick it up, we now have therapies that can bridge patients to go get stem cell therapy and improve their prognosis and their overall treatment before they would go to rapid demise and pretty quick death. So diagnosing it, even though it's rare, if you do diagnose it, you can make a big difference in a patient's life. So that wraps up the episodes that I've selected to pull out and bring to your attention. But I would go back, look through them, and just listen if you get the time. Uh, I picked up a lot more new things, and I think you will too. But remember, Moving forward, we are going to have more and more episodes of Derms and Conditions. If you see me at a meeting, let me know what you think. Give me some ideas or suggestions, or you can email us with those, because we only want this to get better and better for you. I hope you have a great holiday season, and it's been a pleasure to bring you Derms and Conditions and hopefully help you in your practice of dermatology. Happy holidays. Happy holidays.